used to think it might be fun to be anyone else but me. I thought that it would be a pleasant surprise to wake up as a couple of other guys. But now that I've found you, I've changed my point of view. Give a dime to be anyone else but me. What a day! Fortune smiled and came my way, bringing love I never thought I'd see. I'm so lucky to be me. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, October 10th. 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hello. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. Also with us, we have a very special guest joining us. Tony Yazbek is with us. Broadway fans know Tony from way back. I did not realize, Tony, you were a, uh, a newsboy in the 89 uh, through 91 revival of Gypsy. <laughs> also appeared in uh, Chicago, Oklahoma, Never Gonna Dance, A Chorus Line, another version of Gypsy, Irving Berlin's White Christmas, On the Town, which we'll get into, which is a special production for Tony, Finding Neverland, Prince of Broadway, and soon to be Flying Over Sunset. Tony, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking with us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So, Tony, uh, wh- what are your memories of getting that first initial production of Gypsy? You know, it will still remain probably my favorite theatrical experience of all time. You know, they say that when you're a kid and you have sort of a a, a huge life-size moment, that it, it's even more heightened. But for me, I lucked out because... I was doing Gypsy of all shows, (laughs) which is, you know, arguably, but not really the best show of written of all time. Mm -hmm. And so when you get to go to the St. James theater every day for two years off and on, and you get to hear that insanely amazing overture and you get to watch this cast and not only were they hugely talented, but really welcoming, um, it, uh, I got spoiled, I guess, being able to experience that every day. And, I never stopped learning. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I have really great memories backstage, on stage with the cast. It was my second family for sure. You were. Was, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Peter. Yeah, Tony. It says here in IBDB that you're from Riverside, California. Were you living in California when you got cast? No, I was. Uh, we moved from Riverside when I was four years old and um, I moved to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania at the time we moved again, but I was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania about, you know, it's about an hour and 50 minutes, almost two hours from New York. And uh, we drove in on a whim because we had heard about a casting call. It was my first audition 
I ever did in New York or anything professionally, <laughs> theatrically at all. I had no idea what I was doing, but I sure as heck knew the basis of Broadway from all the musical films I was watching as a kid. Um, <clears throat> so when we got to New York, you know, it was one of those things where I was probably, you know, I think they, you know, they huddled us up together at the, on the St. James Theater stage when they, back in the day when they actually had auditions on the stage, um, there were 10 of us kids in each group and I was in one of the first groups and, and uh, we had to sing and tap dance and play the clarinet. And I ended up having to do all, I could do all those things because marching band at the time in high in, in school, I was, so I was 11 years old and uh, I did it. And it was Stuart Howard, the casting director and he sort of stopped auditions and brought me downstairs into that mucky old wardrobe room at the St. James theater Um and uh, sort of just told me I got the job with my parents there and uh, that I was be, I would be starting rehearsals for a Broadway show in two days. Uh, so that was a crazy life-changing experience. Um, All right. But uh, let me ask this. Um, so did your parents move to New York? Did your mother stay with you? How did it work? Well, no, we, we stayed in Bethlehem. My mother wow. uh, primarily drove me every single day back and forth. Um, wow. So what did, what did she do while you were doing the show? Did she always watch it? Did she uh, go across the street and sit in the hotel? <laughs> she was backstage most of the time uh-huh. uh, with the rest of, you know, there were, there were a lot of sort of stage mothers and my mother was a stage mother. I mean, I see. it wasn't by probably by any coincidence that, you know, we were learning the story of Mama Rose while sure. I had Mama Rose with me. Um, wow. Wow. And uh, but yeah, every single day, pretty much except for Monday, obviously. But, you know, Wednesdays, I got out early from school. I went to two classes and we went straight to New York. Um, and uh, the rest of the days, I pretty much came home from class, spent about an hour there, maybe, and went straight to New York. I mean, it was every single day. Uh, OK. Now, the thing is, though, um, was your father a Herbie? Uh, was he somebody who was <laughs> encouraging of this? Uh, did he say what a great thing or um, Rose or whatever um, your mother's my, name? Yeah, was my, crazy? Father, <laughs> my, my parents got divorced uh, a uh-huh. few years prior. Uh, oh, OK. Well, when I was like seven, so about four years prior. Um, so my father wasn't necessarily around all the time. I had a stepfather mm-hmm. at the time that was, um, my stepfather, uh, wasn't, uh, necessarily that supportive of what mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. He got more supportive as I brought home paychecks. Ah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that does make a difference. Doesn't yeah. It? Because we were, uh, I never saw a dime of that money, you know, in, wow. in union now there's a, there's a law and a rule sure, about that sure, where sure. the kids actually have to primary, I think it's 60 or percent or something like that has to go into a fund for the kid. Uh-huh. Gosh, I wish that would have happened back in the day. I never wow. saw that. Um, but uh, but my, it was my mother primarily. My father was very supportive. He's always been an artist. I have a, a line of singers actually on my father's side that dates back to the Titanic. And so it, <laughs> there, there's a, there was a lot of support on that end, but he wasn't necessarily around all the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was it was very much my mother bringing me back and forth. All right. Did you have your eye at that moment in time on Tulsa? Because that you wind up playing it. Did you ever say um, someday I'm going to play that part? Yeah, I think so. And I don't. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think it would have happened if Bobby Lambert, who was playing the role at the time, wasn't so welcoming to me. Uh-huh, he was one uh-huh. of the sweetest 
people I had ever met uh-huh. at the time. And, and it was such a difference from my family environment, which was insanely chaotic. Um, and so being able to go, you know, and he was, his dressing room was like sort of um, across the hall from, from, from the newsboys. And so we would, we would go in there and he would like, you know, he would joke with us a bunch and, and, but he would, when he was on, I did watch from the wings a lot. And mm-hmm. there was something, powerful about that number, which I'm sure you all know is probably one of the most perfect sing, scene song and dances of all time. Mm-hmm. And it, it hit me hard because of where I'd come from as a kid and not necessarily ever feeling seen that what I, you know, that, that doing what I did or being a performer was almost like my identity. And I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get past that in my family a lot. And so being able to see how sort of Arthur Lawrence wrote this show for this little young performer that was in the dark most of the time and had a dream and never felt like he was acknowledged. uh, It just hit me hard. And I think the music resonated on that level. Like everything was focused in that story. Um, And so I'd always knew I wanted to play that, but, but it was, it was just because I felt like I was that, <laughs> you know, it uh-huh. wasn't like, Oh, I want to play this because he sings and dances. I just felt like, Oh, somebody wrote a role that, that understands in a way that understands who I am as a performer. Mm-hmm. By the way, I love, I love how you said that gypsy is arguably the best show mm-hmm. of all time, but not really arguably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are we arguing here? I mean, <laughs> I mean, So, Tony, uh, you've also had so many uh, stints in and out of Chicago. Uh, What's it like, uh, you know, going in as a replacement? Uh, uh, Some of the runs have been, uh, it looks like you were just temporarily in for vacations or something like that, covering Billy Flynn. Well, being it's, it's like the Chicago family is vast. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm very happy to be a part of it. Um, at the time when I was cast as Billy Flynn, I was the youngest Billy Flynn to ever be cast. Um, and I was m- my costume. I remember uh, they gave me a vest because I was one of two, one of three, one of three Billy Flynn's to ever put a dance step into razzle dazzle uh-huh. <laughs> it was me patrick swayze and usher so that was kind of cool um and uh they gave they gave me usher's vest that was made for him and so i was able to sort of put my soft shoe tap they wanted me to just be me so i said can i tap you know and they let me put some tap into it um but being you know part of that family is pretty amazing it, it for me, the Chicago thing dates back to when I first got to New York and I was playing ensemble parts for a long time. And, and uh, Jay Bender sort of said, OK, you know, he was a big fan of mine at the time. And he said, OK, it's time to start stop playing ensemble parts. If you want to start telling more of a story and, and, and play these principal parts, you've got to stop doing this and just say no to things. And at that time, it was a very inconvenient time for me to say no to jobs since I was very much in debt. And um, I was I did get offered two shows like the week after he said that, of course, and one of them was Chicago and the ensemble. And it was like the dream job of ensemble, you know, jobs in New York. I mean, who wouldn't want to be able to completely be themselves in a character and have 
the ability to improv and, you know, just give your own essence of a character. You don't have to copy anything. That's what Chicago is so great about. Um, and so I ended up turning that down, I remember. And, um, and then all of a sudden, years later, being able to uh, be Billy Flynn was just wild. Because, you know, back in the day when I looked at Chicago, I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll never be the singer in the show. You know, like it was a it was a wild time of, yes, I always felt like I was this triple threat in a way or else I I wanted to be that. But I was always working towards it. I, I never felt like I arrived uh, a lot of times in my life. I mean, you know, even now we're still struggling to be certain places. You're always working at something new to try to, you know, create a, the best version of yourself as a performer. And when I got offered that, it was it was wild. I mean, uh, I was honored, and uh, to be able to put my own stamp on it too that that was that was new for me. You know, I've told uh, Tony. Uh, I think I saw I, what I guess was one of your first, or maybe your first, uh, leading roles as an adult, which was in Doctor Doolittle. Oh gosh! Yes, <laughs> as uh, Matt Matthew is he called Matthew Mug Matthew in the show? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Anthony Newley's part from the from the movie, yes, in uh, Philly, yeah. Actually, might be right. That might be my first. Uh, is that my first principal <laughs> job? It might be on a level like that for sure. I had done a couple of things in summer stock and regional theater, but that was that was the big first job uh, mm-hmm. working on a level that where you know they actually really wanted to take the show and move it to New York, and it ended up obviously not happening, but. Um, it was a really low budget national tour uh, with dreams of making it big and uh, but beautiful Leslie Brickus songs. I mean, you bet, gorgeous. You bet. Uh, I agree. So we had to sing three of those songs on stage and and dance and just really be myself. It was a first, yeah. Yeah, as I re- as I recall, there wasn't a whole lot of dancing in that role, uh, but I was so impressed with your beautiful voice. Uh, and it's it's funny because I I guess I thought of you primarily as a singer, <laughs> um, and then Thank of you. course, <laughs> then of course we <laughs> went you know other things happened and I'm like oh okay. <laughs> um, let me ask about uh, college. Uh, I know that you were at CCM for a while. Yes, I know you know because I remember seeing you there, Peter. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, so as a result, um, was that one of many schools that you applied to? Did your mother have a big hand in choosing it? My mother had zero hand in any of it because we were absolutely broke and I couldn't go to college unless I basically got a full ride. So uh-huh. I had to do everything myself. I, I sort of never, I've never been given any money from my parents. It was a, I, this started very young for me. Uh, so it was one of those things where I auditioned for about 15 different colleges wow. and I got into some really great ones and couldn't go because of money. Um, I got into Carnegie Mellon, couldn't go because uh, I, they only gave me like two thirds scholarship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Things mm-hmm. like that happened. Mm-hmm. So it was um, I, I, I went to Point Park University at first because they gave me full ride. And sure, I sure enough negotiated that full ride myself in the office of the president and said, I'm not coming unless you give me full ride. <laughs> so my negotiating skills started young. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. But uh, I went there for two years, actually got great training. Some of my 
favorite teachers are from there. My voice teacher, my dance teacher. Um, I'll never forget how they trained me. It's, um, but it was one of those things where the teachers were great, but the community itself, the, the peep, the kids around me, and I never felt like they were challenging me. It doesn't, it didn't feel like a lot of them were on the path that I was on. So I uh-huh. wanted to transfer and I knew sort of CCM had that. And, and I, so I transferred there, didn't quite get the full ride, but I knew I was going to be in debt a little bit. Um, uh, but uh, I went to CCM and I, I got that community and I had a few great teachers too. Like I'll never forget Kate Jenny Jones pushing me in acting class the way she did and opening me up and being, you know, fearless. Um, so there, there was, it was a totally different experience, but, um, that being said at the end of it, I was bizarrely just like miserable and broke. I remember eating like peanut butter jelly sandwiches over a friend's house because I had no food. I was just like bombing food from people. Um, <laughs> couldn't pay for my $350 a week or a month, uh, rent. Um, I, it was bad. And I remember leaving my car, that I had, which had problems. And I just left it on the curb. I got into a Greyhound with two, two bags and, and literally went to New York broke. And the reason why I went is because I went to the, the Dean of musical theater department at that time, Aubrey Berg. Uh, and I, I asked him straight up, I was miserable. I said, do I need this degree? And he gave me sort of the best piece of information. He said, no, you don't need this. You can go be on Broadway right now. If you want to be here, be here. If you don't leave. And I went and he wow. said, he, he said, you have my support either way. You're going to be fantastic. You'll make it either way. This school should be for people who want to be here. And I went, goodbye. <laughs> so, um, I have to I have to corroborate that. <laughs> yeah, Aubrey and I spoke about this and uh, I remember him telling me uh, at the time, he said, you know, I always encourage people to get degrees. But in Tony's case, I'm saying something very different. So I remember him telling me that. Yeah, it was. Uh, I I did not expect that, and I, mm-hmm. I was. I remember heaving, crying in there because I wow. wanted because it was a. I knew it was a. Ther- it was like it was therapy, but in a way, I just wanted to be accepted. I wanted somebody to see me for me. It was the same mm-hmm. thing I had been going through as a kid, mm-hmm. and he looked at me and he did, and I I'll never forget that. That was the beginning of my me finally bonding with Aubrey Burke. How nice! And, and so going to New York, having zero money. I stayed on a couch of a woman in, in Queens at the time who went to my same high school uh, in Florida. And it was like the only connection I had. It turns out this woman was an assistant agent uh, at Harden Curtis. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, it was bizarre. I was like, you, what? You didn't tell me that. <laughs> so she looked at me right away and, and saw and thought, you know, I remember she said it was the first night I was there. She said, um, you know, have have you been in scene or at all you know we're casting this annie get your gun national tour and i was like no i literally just got here today i haven't been to new york in years and she she submitted me and i went in for a few other auditions but i ended up getting that job and going on national tour and paying off my entire debt at ccm and then finally moving to new york the year after tell me what Cary grant means to you or meant to you did you know who he was did you see many of his movies um now that you're playing him yeah Cary, uh to me <clears throat> as a young person was sort of just the pinnacle of like hollywood movie star but also at the same time i had this idea that he was just like a general classic 
you know, white dude in Hollywood who got mm -hmm. got his way because he was that damn good looking. Like mm -hmm. I didn't really understand it until I went down the rabbit hole and researched him because for a while, when I got this job, you know, before I did really research him, um, cause I was offered this early on and um, I didn't quite understand why it was me other than the fact that they wanted him to tap dance. So I, hmm. um, I went down the rabbit hole and realized we have a lot in common, this guy and me. And uh, it hit me hard uh, just based off his childhood and his parents and him making it is making his own way in the business and creating his own persona. And, uh, uh, you know, the, how many times he moved and um, what, what was interesting and fabulous to me was how every single, you know, to the point he created his own persona so much where you can go look at all his movies and he, he changes his dialect every single movie. <laughs> like it's not even the same Cary Grant voice. He's constantly trying to find who he is by going away from himself. And I found that really, really compatible with who I was at the time, you know. So, Without giving too much away, uh, can you tell us at least, it, does Flying Over Sunset deal with his sexual orientation? Um, it does in a way where we don't pinpoint it. Okay. Uh, okay. I think it's really, I, because in the history books, you know, the things that I've read, it there isn't a, there isn't a real concrete answer. And I, I'm not sure if there ever will be one. Um, I think that, you know, I think it, what's interesting about the whole aspect of LSD and the fact that he did try LSD a hundred times or more. Um, and it was mm. part of his sort of lifestyle and it's how he got through Hollywood. And he, he attributes being a better actor to it just based on his own therapy. Um, I, I think that even doing that at the time um, helped him understand that it was okay to just be him, even if he was, sexually fluid in ways without having to put an identity on something. He just said, well, I am who I am. I don't have to make any excuses for it. Um, was he attracted to women? Yeah. Was he attracted to men? Maybe. I, I don't know, but I, it, it definitely, I definitely don't think he was one way or the other. Let's put it that way, mm -hmm. but that's my opinion. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. a lot of opinions out there, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but yes, mm -hmm. it, it deals with it slightly, um, and there are some jabs, but it mostly deals with it in his psyche. We hear how he's been affected by the people that have jabbed at him for it, the press, but at the same time, possibly why he feels the way he feels based on how his father treated him, how his mother treated him, which I think is even more important for Carrie. And speaking of jabs, uh, before we had the vaccine, of course, we did have the uh, we did have the shutdown. So you were very close to uh, opening, right? We were shut down five hours before our first preview with an audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was the day of. And uh, yep, that was that was really, really heartbreaking for us. Of course. And um, did you believe the um, early statements that it'll be April, it'll be May, it'll be September? Um, How did you feel about that? I feel like I was the only one in the cast who, who had a pessimistic, I guess, dead, but dead on attitude of, yeah, this is a big deal. It's not going to uh -huh. be three weeks because the first time they said anything was going to be three weeks. Right. 
And, uh, you know, everybody thought, oh, good, three weeks, three weeks off. Um, and then realizing it's going to be three months or whatever it was next. And I thought, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not going to be for another year and a half. And I actually pinpointed almost to the month when we were going to come back. Wow. Uh, uh, James Lapine laughed at me and said, no way, we're coming back earlier than that. And he, we laugh about it now. But uh, it's uh, it's kind of amazing what what's happened. But I was heartbroken because, you know, I, I have had many different injuries and in different, you know, I had a certain back surgery before years, years prior. And, and I was at the point, I remember that day thinking I'm in the best shape of my life right now. Uh, I have trained for this. My body is like, I haven't had sugar in like five months. Like I, <laughs> I am like ready to go. Let's do eight shows a week. And as soon as that happened, I thought, are you, are you kidding me? What am I supposed to do now? Like what, and uh, that was tough. That was hard for me because uh, we had all worked on something special and and we didn't get one paying customer to come see it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, man, it's going to be interesting when we come back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if you mentioned this while we were recording or before we were recording. So you're just about to start rehearsals again? Yes, we are about to start rehearsals. Uh, the main company comes in on October 19th. I believe this week they're going to have some of the new cast members come in and learn th- some things. But October 19th is our first day of rehearsal. And, and then two weeks later, we, we jump on the stage. And then I think our first preview is November 11th. A few weeks ago, we just missed your uh, your show at 54 Below a few weeks ago. Uh, so I guess you were working on that for a little bit. Yeah, it, it was um, it, it was great because I got to bring some special guests with me who I've admired through the years, Philip Atmore and our choreographer of Flying Over Sunset, uh, Michelle Dorrance, uh, came up on the stage and, and sort of showed the world what real tap dance is, which was really neat. <laughs> and um, but I, I've I've really enjoyed doing those. A lot of times, you know, when I go back to Fifty Four, it's it's I like to try new things. It's mostly for me to confront what I do again in front of an audience. And uh, sometimes it's, it's to just remind myself how much I love what I do. And, um, and I still love it, which is great. Um, so um, it's, it's always fun. I, and I always forget how much I love it until I see faces in the audience. I just connect with an audience. I feel so, I feel so at home. I'm more, I'm more stressed and more nervous in a rehearsal or without a, without an audience there than I am, when you know when they when they say my name and I jump on the stage and I see people out there, I just feel like okay, we're going to share stories. We're going to be okay tonight. We're going to we're going to feel connected, and that that's always a great feeling. <laughs> uh, did you get a chance uh, during this time off to uh, go back and and look at projects that you have wanted to do? I mean, for like a Rob McClure, it's it's building a bathroom in his house, but <laughs> for, for other people, they're they're looking at uh, working on uh, other things. How about you? Well, you, you're talking about do-it-yourself things. I We actually did that last summer, um, two summers ago. We were, you know, it was at the point where Broadway wasn't coming back for a while, and we had the opportunity to redo our entire kitchen. We knocked down a wall uh, and we totally gutted it with a friend of ours who helped us design it. And, and uh, we have a new kitchen in there. I I put a new roof on my house, all the things I would have probably never gotten to, but I kept working, working. Um, I got to bond with my kid more than I ever, you know, ever did before. Um, Who's now four and a half. He's not little, 
he's not a baby anymore. It's crazy. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Let's see. I, you know, honestly, uh, just building uh, contacts with the film and TV world too, trying to get in the door very close to certain things and building relationships with the, with the studios. Um, I'm start, I, st- I did a lot of charity work on my time. Uh, off. Nice. I did a lot of work with Broadway cares and, and gave back to some of the food banks up here, um, helped some of my friends in need who were, you know, in hospital. Um, but, um, and then sort of learning the ropes as a producer too. I've always wanted to be a producer director who, who could sort of, you know, understand the ropes of, you know, all the, all the ways of theater and in film and TV. I, I've been passionate about getting the real modern day, sort of song and dance movie musical back on the screen, the way it really should be done. Um, and um, I, my, that passion burns hardcore to the point where I'm trying to round up all the troops who do what I do in the, the real fashion and, and, uh, and get that going some, someday, someday that's going to happen. Cause I don't think we've quite seen what, what that is yet, but that's me. We haven't talked about on the town yet, uh, which, um, the 2014 revival of it, which yeah. uh, you got many accolades for. So tell us about your your first introduction to On the Town. Did you watch it as a child on the screen? You know, I remember sort of seeing it, but no, I never really like sat through it because it always felt like it was, I, I don't know what it is. Why, did, why didn't it stick with me? I think it was because Gene had things like American in Paris and Singing mm-hmm. in the Rain Sure. That always hit me harder because there was something inherently like deeply heartfelt about it. Whereas on the town, when you put it on at least like the first 20 minutes, it just felt like this sort of, sort of like winky thing. I, I like this sort of not cheesy, but it it never felt like it was sticking to me the way the rest of his films did the way, you know, the Bernstein West side story did. And, and I think it's because, on the town on the screen changed so much when it hit mm-hmm. the screen in the, in ways in which Bernstein probably never really liked. And right. so mm-hmm. um, going back and looking at it, but, you know, I remember getting this offer uh, way back when we did sit, it was during my run at in Gypsy when I was doing Tulsa and Jay said, we, we want you to do this. And I had really no idea what I was in store for, but I started to research it and I thought, Oh my God, this is the one and maybe only role that sings like legit arias in a way. Mm-hmm, it, like, mm-hmm, classic mm-hmm. music as a vocalist and then does 10 minute ballets. Like, where else are you going to find this? And I thought, somebody has understood me. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> here I am trained in, you know, trained classically in my vocals in, in college and you know, I've never deemed myself a ballet dancer, but I've, I've always understood the modern technique and, and modern has always helped me to dance any genre. That's, 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 that's the God honest truth. And so being able to put myself into a role like that was a, was a chance in a lifetime. I don't think I'll ever have an experience like that ever again, just because of what that role needed to be uh, you know on the stage what it required i always thought uh, at the risk of stating the obvious that that maybe if you want to focus on a specific property um for the movies <laughs> as you were discussing before it, it would be incredible to do a, a faithful movie adaptation of on the town mm-hmm. oh wow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah 
if we if, if there's anything that New York needs more than ever, it would be something like that, right? Mm, yeah, a homage to a real homage to to uh, you know the veterans don't at war and 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 the risks they take and and the romance of New York. I mean, just incredible romance. Yes. Well, speaking of uh, veterans, um, did you have much interaction with Harold Prince uh, doing Prince of Broadway? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hal and I hit it off right away. I was scared to death meeting sure. him in that audition. Sure. I'll never forget sure. that coming in and and saying hi. It wasn't really an audition. It was kind of a meeting. And it, because of that, I was like, let's not screw this up. I already have this in the bag. Please, God. And Hal <laughs> Prince to me was like the king of Broadway, not the sure. prince. I mean, the, the guy mm. was sure. everything. Um, and, and to be able to work with these legends who are around were much older than you, who you've looked at, looked up to since you were a kid. Um, but I walked into that room with Stroman and Hal and Jason Robert Brown, and and they talked to me. And then being able to get into this rehearsal process, and not just doing his material, but to be able to create some things on the stage specifically for what I do and how I do it, and how allowing that to happen. And that encouragement that he gave me every single day he would come up to me and look me in the eyes and said things like, you know, you're one of a kind or you're special or, or I'm so proud of the work you're doing. Keep going. I mean, it mm. was like you started to realize why he was so good. Uh-huh. And it, and I, and I think based off of him and even Stroman's sort of graceful way of bringing people together in it, it's, it's in the same light where, he was so successful because he brought good people together. He was always kind-hearted and brilliant in the way he spoke to people. And then he sort of just got out of the way. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. that's it. That was the how that was why he was great. Yes, he had these the vision. He had a vision of putting something beautiful in a black box, the way he talks about it. But at the end of the day, he just knew how to get people together. And all of us in that room, creatives, cast, Everybody was such a kind human being. And and I was like, oh, he designed this this way um, because he wanted it to be, wanted that positive energy to spin. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I cried my eyes out the day I got the call that he passed because mm-hmm. um, I have some text still with him about two months prior where we started to plan a lunch date together where I was going to pick his brain about producing because I had started to get really interested in, in doing that and creating my own thing. And he saw that, I mean, he said, we're going to do that. And I, I never got that lunch date, but uh, uh, you know, I have some great messages I'll keep forever and maybe I'll frame. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, all right. Producing now um, many producers, when they start out, produce revivals because the title is well known. And um, are you more interested in producing revivals of classic musicals, unknown musicals or new shows? You know, it's always been new shows for me. I uh-huh. I um I I got a I yeah I I have a sort of a song and dance background heart, you know, because of the people I've looked at, but my my visionary sort of director and, and I think it's because of the the mentors I've had in my past like people like Tina Landau and Bill T Jones, these are people I've learned from. Um I, I, I more, more of my stuff that I envision belongs at places like Lincoln Center. <laughs> so uh, it's it's a little bit of cross genreing things, being able to take, you know, a tap dancer and a and a violinist and a and a harpist and uh 
uh, in an opera singer and somebody who's beatboxing and just go for it. You know, so there, it's, I have a, a wild uh, sense in me, but at the same time, I, as far as the, the, the musical goes, the, like a, a movie musical is where I, I see taking something classic and updating it to be modern and mm-hmm. of 2021, 2022. Um, that's, that's where I get excited. Cause I, I see it all in my head. Um, but as far as mu- musicals go, I, I love a new script. Um, I love, I have a lot of friends right now who I'm encouraging to keep writing and I'm pushing them and they hate how I call them and say, are you <laughs> writing? Are you, yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> going? Yeah, Cause you know, it, you do, you just have to, you have to press on and keep going and keep going. And, uh, I, I want to see the new works, and there's so many people right now that are that, that have been denied entry into New York for years, and and I think we're seeing the climate change, where we're we're, we're a little more open to all types of people who write, and that's where I think we're going to see the real, you know, the the brand new sort of generation of theater happen. And I'm, that's where I'm excited as a director, producer, to to start making things happen. Mm-hmm. Well, Tony, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. It's been wonderful to chat with you. Uh, after uh, Flying Over Sunset opens up, we'd love to have you back and give us your experience with that. Oh, thank you. I would love that. I'm, I'm sure I'll be in much better shape. I <laughs> New York, New York, New York. Not another minute to see the famous sight. We'll find the romance and danger waiting in it beneath the Broadway lights. But we pair on our chests so when we like the best are the nights. Sidelight nights, New York, New York, a hell of a town. The Bronx is up, but the battery's down. The people ride in a hole in the ground. New York, New York, it's a hell of a town. All right, so the three of us got to see the new musical Six, and uh, Peter, Michael, and I probably have very differing takes on it. So, Peter, why don't you start on this? (laughs) Depending on your outlook, it's either a glorious or glorified rock concert. Um, It has all the rock concert uh, tropes. Um, How you doing, New York? Yay, everybody cheers. You know, uh, they introduced the band again. Very rock concert in that way. Uh, That said, uh, I will say the lyrics are very intelligent and more to the point. What's really fine is an observation made at the end that I think is really, really um, a profound one. And that is the fact that the reason we remember the wives of Henry VIII at all is because there were so many of them. Um, As one of the wives points out, do you know who? was the wife of Henry V, um, Henry VI, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And most people don't. But we do know that uh, Henry VIII indeed had so many. And at least in this one, something happens that does not happen in that famous movie, The Private Lives of Henry VIII, where Catherine of Aragon is mentioned (laughs) only in a, a slide at the beginning, which tells us that there was such a person as Catherine of Aragon, and they leave it at that. So I don't... Um, so you don't even get uh, all the wives uh, detailed in that movie. Here you do. And everybody, of course, has a point of view. And um, they talk about the 
back that some were beheaded, some were divorced, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it really is a rock concert and a refusion, really, of a Broadway musical and a rock concert, though um, it's, it's about 75% more rock concert than musical. But it has found an audience and has found a very passionate one. I've been twice because I, I did see it um, before the uh, pandemic hit. I was there the Saturday before the Thursday when everything stopped. So this was my second time. And the audience reaction is just overwhelmingly powerful. Um, this is an audience, of course, that's been uh, weaned on rock concerts. So as a result, they're very much at home with it. They're having a wonderful time. I predict a long, 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 long run. And um, I'm very glad that it's pleasing the people that's uh, seeing it. Okay. Michael, what did you think? Mm, I, uh, I thought there was one clever thing in the show uh, overall. And uh, Peter alluded to it. I, at one point, they, towards the end, they discussed the fact that uh, uh, why do people remember them and why do people remember Henry? Uh, and uh, at first, the women say something like, "Well, they, they only remember us be because we were married to Henry VIII." But then they they flip it and say what what Peter said that they are, that uh, do people remember Henry because of his politics? Uh, you know, because of his way that he governed. Uh, I mean, maybe to some extent. But what most people know about him is that he had six wives. So in a way he's remembered most <laughs> for, for, for that. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very clever thing. I am, I was very surprised to hear uh, Peter praise the lyrics. I thought he was going to say the exact opposite because first of all, the rhymes are, are all over the place. I, I, you know, I, I like I, in a rock concert. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. And it's funny. Remember if you, if you recall, I used to use that argument with spring awakening. Mm-hmm that those lyrics uh, are the way ly lyrics are written nowadays. So in that sense, I guess they're appropriate, but that's, so that's a good point to remember here, but yeah, if you, if, uh, if true rhymes and, and, uh, and correct accents on, on lyrics are, are something that you prize, this is not a show for you. Um, I, I, I wasn't surprised to hear Aragon rhymed with Paragon. Uh, I half expected that was going to happen, and it did, and I got a chuckle out of that. But then words like, uh, they, at one point, they quote-unquote rhyme funny with nunnery. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, come on. Uh, and that's that's just one example. But also, uh, to me, the, the misaccents of the lyrics were the worst I've ever heard. Uh, and, you know, I mean, really, I, I think when people like uh, when people like Oscar Hammerstein and, and Alan J. Lerner and Stephen Sondheim, I think when they were writing their lyrics, if, if they came up with an idea and a, a word popped into their head, but it didn't fit into the music because the accent was in the wrong place, I don't think they would just keep it there anyway. Uh, you know, and and expect people not to care or notice, but that uh, it seemed to me that this show was filled with that, uh, and and that that was one of the reasons why the lyrics were so hard to understand. Uh, in addition to the the sound amplification, which to me. Well I'd like to say something else about why the lyrics are hard to understand, and that is mm. because um, they're constantly on microphones, handheld microphones, which are in front of their faces. And of, of course, this doesn't really uh, apply to people who are um, in the last rows of the, the uh, balcony. But the point is, we do rely 
on lip reading more than we think. And mm. um, the mics take that away from us because uh, they obscure the mouths. And that's uh, a big problem. Um, what I meant by uh, the lyrics being good was the fact that I thought they had made intelligent points. And uh, and again, being a rock concert, I, I do see a difference with Spring, Awake- Spring Awakening, which was more of a musical. I mean, yes, they had microphones, too, which, of course, I always felt was terrible because it was so anachronistic, which it is here, too, of course. But again, this is a rock concert. And um, with Spring Awakening, they didn't introduce the band. Uh, they didn't say, how are you doing, New York uh, or any of the other cities they were in. So um, so this it's not so much that it gets a pass from me, but I understand the um, the environment more. That's I, oh, I got you. Yeah. As mm. far as the, the points that the lyrics were making. Yeah. 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 That I thought were intelligent. So now uh, here's anyway. a problem I have with the show, and I may be the only one in the world, and people may laugh at me when I say this, uh, but I don't think that I can respond to a show in which the fact that um, two of these women were beheaded by their husbands is treated as comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Now, I wouldn't say too soon. <laughs> uh, you know, this was hundreds of years ago, uh, yeah. but but uh, but the fact remains. And that to me is so barbaric that I cr- I literally cringed every time. And and for some reason in this show, um, they they make it a running quote unquote joke as far as Anne Boleyn. Uh, literally, it's brought up throughout the show for joke purposes. Uh, the other the other uh, wife who was beheaded, uh, not so much. <laughs> they, they almost mentioned it in passing and don't don't focus on it at all. So in 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 a way, that's that's offensive. I thought, um, uh, does anyone <laughs> uh, do either of you um, ag- agree with me on that? Well, it, it, I'll tell you a, a, a tangential story. Um, I mentioned the private lives of Henry VIII, and I decided to watch the movie after I saw six uh, this time around. And I put it on. And as I mentioned, they just referred to Catherine of Aragon at the beginning uh, in words on the screen. And then what you're immediately taking to is the day that Anne Boleyn is being beheaded. And there she is uh, in her cell waiting to be beheaded. And uh, that was it. I said, you know, I do not want to uh, spend any time with this. I do not want to see this happen. Uh, mm. Life's hard enough. Uh, let me watch Barefoot in the Park. Mm. So, um, you know, so I know what you're saying. You know, that's very true. Yeah. And uh, Peter, did you ever see um, this, the film version of Wolf Hall? No, no. Well, the, 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 the Anne, Bohe- Anne Boleyn beheading sequence is devastating. Uh, but, you know, anyway, uh, that's I'm going off on a tangent here. That's what I felt. And I, I, I apparently very few people agree with me, but I, I really did have a, a hard time with that, to, to say the least. Uh, generally speaking, this show is uh, I mean, I'm not the audience for this show. I, I think that goes without saying uh, I I was amazed by the uh, the the uh, vociferous response from mm. the audience. And I didn't realize that I, I knew the show had played in England, but I guess mm-hmm. it's it been playing elsewhere in America. Yeah, they did it. They did a bunch of tours and they play, played a bunch of major cities in America already before Broadway. And that, I guess, par- largely explains the fan base that it's. Uh, and plus, of course, there's a recording out already. And isn't there a video? I don't know about that, but there's, it, it did seem to me both times I saw it that the audience had seen it before. 
that they were return visitors. They seemed right. to know everything that was happening. They knew when to applaud. They knew when to woo, you know, all that stuff. So Yeah, I, w- um, I was en- en- enormously annoyed at the woman sitting in front of me who kept on putting her hands up and and sure. anticipating what was going to happen on sure. stage and yeah. yelping. And I missed tons of lyrics, and I was just mm-hmm. very, very str- – So, Michael, about your um, – about your uh, your comment about uh, joking joking about um, joking about uh, the, the the beheadings, Lauren yes. Collins Lauren Collins Hughes uh, f- uh, from the New York Times uh, uh, had a big discussion on Twitter about that that she felt that there should be a trigger warning in this because people that are going into this are. Uh, should know that there's domestic violence that's being joked about and uh, discussed. Thank you for telling me. And so, and I, I think that you have hit on a point that has been has been brought up by by a number of others, but still not addressed by the uh, by this uh, production. Hmm. The uh, and you would think that it would be with you know so much of uh, everything being reacted. Uh, anything said on social media. With uh, Broadway these days is being reacted to, sure, uh, so strongly by everything. Uh, insofar as the lyrics and everything like this, I, I do believe that the writers of this this was something that they wrote in high school. Uh-huh. So along the <laughs> along the lines of Joseph and uh, and the beginnings <laughs> of Superstar, you know, those type of things. I, I I gave them a pass on these things. I talked to Tony Janicki about this uh, production because he saw it on his trip. Uh, and he's just heading back um, home now. But the uh, my take on six is that I really enjoyed it. I didn't think it was great theater. I thought it was a lot of fun. I, I'm really sad about this because it seems as though that this could run for a number of years and mm-hmm. tie up a Broadway house. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't think to. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I don't think that this is great Broadway. I think that this is fun. You know calorie uh, <laughs> entertainment calorie free, yeah. free. I, I, I calorie free i was going to say calorie free but i wasn't sure but we're going down a rabbit hole there but <laughs> it, it's it's not it's it's really empty calorie thank you rob johnson uh, thank you okay. yeah and they wrote it in college not in high school thanks rob um so i, I had a great time my wife hated it Uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) hated it hated it hated it and i was really surprised because she loves a good rock concert uh but she Uh really hated this Um, my girlfriend refused to go a second time in fact Mm. Uh well and as yeah as peter and i have discussed ad infinitum i i always uh am repelled when they do that how you do in new york and it's Mm -hmm. always twice always twice you know you you never clap you never clapped loud enough the first time Never. Right. I mean, they could take the roof off the first time and they would still say it again. Uh, and then they said it that wasn't it wasn't only at the beginning of the show it was, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, two other times throughout. So I, I yeah. I, and again, I, I realize that's a rock concert thing. So, yeah, but there's obviously an audience for this and um, it's obviously pleasing a lot of people because um, <laughs> I saw them pleased. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I, 
there has to be a place for something like this on Broadway. There just has to be because uh, all these people who grew up seeing rock concerts may think it's very interesting to see a rock concert with a story, with a mm. theme, um, with, a, with a fine perception at the end and all that. So so I, I, I do believe that uh, even if we're talking about it tying up a Broadway theater for a number of years, the fact remains that <clears throat> there are approximately 40 uh, Broadway theaters and maybe there should be one devoted to a glorified or glorious rock concert depending on how you look at it i did like the music a lot i thought uh it Mm. was very catchy and i thought it was to me far better than the lyrics and there was one other point important point i have to make before we go um uh, the night I saw the show was a critic's performance, but two of the six wives were out. Oh. Uh, I hope, I of course hope it wasn't COVID related. I have no reason to think it was, but whatever the reason, um, I mean, the show is only just started up again and it was a critic's performance. That's highly unusual um, for two people to miss like that so uh last thing i wanted to say uh ask about and maybe comment on is that there were uh as peter mentioned and i think michael did as well you had three uh, a a piano drums and bass guitar or four people a lead guitar and a bass guitar and a piano and drums on stage as a four-piece orchestra do you think it was enhanced was there anybody else that was playing um did you it's, think certainly it sounded like more yeah didn't occur to me now that you mentioned it <laughs> but you know of course keep it you know electric keyboards can really fill in a lot sure yeah uh and did you notice that all of them were wearing earpieces no <laughs> no i didn't so they they wore uh in-ear monitors like they do at rock concerts which i wonder if that's going to become a, a broadway thing so uh Let's see yeah, we'll see about it. Um, so that is six and now and forever. Yeah. Uh, at the Brooks yeah. Atkinson. <laughs> right. Because, right. I mean, uh, basically six performers and a, possibly a, 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 an orchestra of four and right. $499 orchestra seats. Wow. Right. Right. $499. Wow. So that wow. can run forever. Sure. Sure. Unless, of course, uh, people just don't have the money. I mean, again, we, we, I hear rumors. Oh, that's all I'm saying is rumors. I hear rumors that advanced sales for all the shows aren't very good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the people are really hard to get back now or brag that they were in the first audience of and all that goes with that. But and again, rumor, I don't know. I mean, for all I know, this is sold out till, you know, 2091. But and we don't if, know because the league is not producing crosses. Right. right. Yeah. So uh, and that may be the reason why that they don't want people to know that uh, business is not good. But whatever the case may be, um, I do predict a long and happy life for six. Yeah. So, Peter, you got down to the gym at Judson to see Beyond Babel. Did you learn any new languages? No, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, I was just reading um, in the Elaine Stritch biography about the fact that uh, in Sail Away, the 1961 musical she did that was written by Noel Coward, they had a, a bit of contention on whether it should be Babel or Babel um, in one <laughs> lyric, you know, so and that comes up in the show, ironically enough. But this is a dance piece. And uh, that's what's uh, the order of the day. It is simply a dance piece. Uh, there are perhaps maybe. I don't know, 18 words um, in, in the whole show that people speak. It's uh, a dance piece that's um, 
based on Romeo and Juliet. Um, one could argue that it's based on West Side Story, but um, so it's sort of a hip hop version of the choreography of uh, West Side Story, if you want to look at it that way. So uh, uh, Keone Mari and the Hideaway Circus get credit for the choreography, and it is truly astonishing. Um, Michael Bennett would be really, really pleased with this show. Why? Because as you may recall in chorus line, he mentions the fact that he cannot have anybody stand out. That's what he's worried about that Cassie will do because she has the makings of a star and she's unique and um, don't pop the hat, Cassie and all that goes with that. Well, here there are some, there have to be hundreds of hand gestures and leg gestures and what have you that happen. And this company of <clears throat> more than a dozen dancers do it in perfect precision. And it's also asymmetrical. Um, if you know our favorite song from the Will Rogers Follies, uh, occasionally they have moves that aren't quite, uh, one doesn't really link with the other and they don't repeat things over and over. Busby Berkeley used to say, um, that you do the same step over and over again until the audience applauds. Well, they don't do the same step over and over again here. They don't do the same hand gesture over and over again here. And the fact that they even learned it is astonishing, but that they're doing it in such precision makes this really, really something. So uh, it's all done to hip hop music. And let me tell you, their hips are hopping in this show. So um, it's an, um, um, is, is it uh, <laughs> conventional choreography? Well, as Dolly Levi would say about dancing, well, the word, I think I'd use as athletic and it's very athletic. It's very muscular and it's something to see. So uh, two acts. Why? Those dancers need a break. Believe me, because they certainly <laughs> uh, work like crazy. So down at the Judson, if you're into choreography, if you're into hip hop, if you're into seeing people really do their work very, very well, you must get to be on Babel or Babel. Your choice. <laughs> All right, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you got down to 54 Below to see Laura Benanti uh, in her Diamond Series show. So tell us, how wonderful was she? Well, she was great, and uh, I think it's appropriate that they have got people like Laura and Kelly O'Hara for the Diamond Series because they're both jewels in their own way. Uh, it was a wonderful show. Um, Laura did a very eclectic program. I mean, first of all, she's one of the funniest women in show business. I think we all know that. And her patter was such a highlight that even if she hadn't sung a note, I think it, it would have been uh, a great time would have been had by all. But of course she sang a lot um, songs. Uh, uh, she, she sort of treated this as a uh, informal release party for her uh, latest album, which came out, uh, in the height of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they weren't able to have any kind of a real release party uh, live event at that time. Um, and so the, uh, as I said, the, the song stack is really eclectic. Uh, she sings uh, cigarettes and chocolate mints. Uh, she does a whole thing about the song wives and lovers, that infamous, infamous song that was a tremendous hit uh, for Jack Jones in the 60s. And now we all look back on it and the message that it gives and say, how could this possibly <laughs> have, have happened? You know, um, so it's, you know, that's this is typical of Laura to pick something like that and then sing it ironically and 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 just 
you know, present it to modern day audiences so so people can hear that this actually happened. You know, um, I, th- I think it's great that she does that. Uh, she did a beautiful version of What Are You Doing the Rest of Your Life dedicated to her family. And I think uh, it's fair to say that all of us think of that those lyrics of that that song really is being aimed at a at a lover uh but um but they really gained a new meaning uh directed at, uh in terms of familial love so that was really wonderful um she talked about her uh her videos that she's done and that the way she encouraged high school students who didn't get oh, to yeah, do right. yeah who didn't get to mm. do their high school shows during the pandemic to mm, to yeah. send in videos and how how what an incredible response she got to that. Uh, and that was really heartwarming. Um, back to the song stack, she sang The Boy From, that hilarious mm-hmm. Mary Rogers, Stephen Sondheim song, uh, Don't Worry About Me. Um, she had a wonderful guest named Brandon Michael Hayes, who sang a song that I have no idea what it was, <laughs> but it was beautiful. And um, um, the great thing about him was that he started out and sang like two thirds of the song in the smoothest, most beautiful voice uh, you can imagine. And then at the end, he started to really, really wail. <laughs> and uh, and since it was so unexpected uh, and he did it so well, the audience just went nuts. So he was a great guest. And then he sang with Laura as well. Um uh, Laura sang uh, I Could Have Danced All Night as a souvenir of her dream role, which she did finally get to play uh, uh, my, of Eliza and My Fair Lady at Lincoln Center. Uh, she did a, a, a tribute that brought tears to my eyes, a tribute to Rebecca Luker, mm-hmm. um, uh, whom she initially understudied in The Sound of Music and then eventually replaced. Uh, she sang Vanilla Ice Cream and The Party's Over and 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover was the encore. And it was a really, really wonderful night. All right. That's wonderful. Do you, uh, does she have more uh, upcoming shows at 54 as part of the series? I don't recall. It was a week. It was through, I think, today or yesterday. Oh. If I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll double check that while you go on to the next thing, but I'm pretty but sure. But the, uh, the Diamond series tr- uh, continues on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Peter, uh, you got to see Repertorio Espanol's, I'm going to say this in English, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel uh, by Juno Diaz um, about a young man who has a lot of difficulties and falls in love much too easily, and uh, this will cost him a great deal. Um, We don't know what Jesus Christ's relationship was with Mary Magdalene, but um, Oscar has a chance to have a similar um, encounter with uh, someone not unlike Mary Magdalene and uh, falls deeply in love with her, and um, will will pay for that as term but he tries with uh, a, a more conventional love in the first act and um and it doesn't uh, work out so uh we're not really terribly surprised that uh he's going to just fall in love much too easily with this woman who does show him a good deal of attention and um really is on his side and um is fond of him in the way that um that she can be while she's still being a professional. Anyway, uh, Jesus Martinez, terrific as Oscar, really, really quite wonderful. Um, and uh, the whole cast is really quite, quite fine. And um, it, uh, for those who know the book, and plenty of people do, 
um, I think they will find it a solid stage adaptation. Of course, not everything from the book is in the the, the um, play, but you can't expect that. What I really want to point out more than anything else, though, uh, as wonderful as it is, and it is. And oh, by the way, it is in Spanish and they do have super titles. Um, the super titles are far back on the stage. And I wish they push them forward because there are times when the actors are on the lip of the stage and they sort of obscure, depending on where you're sitting. I was on very, very far house right. Um, and uh, there were times I missed uh, a few words, nothing serious. But um, I, if, if I had any advice to give to Repertorio Espanol, should they care to hear it, um, I would definitely say that uh, that subtitle, a uh, super title, actually, uh, Machine be placed a little closer. Okay. What do I really want to say? All right. Contributors. All right. So the first contributor mentioned uh, uh, Lawrence and Sandra Small. Fine. And very big, uh, very um, bold face type. Underneath, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Luis Miranda, and Dr. Luce Towns Miranda and the Miranda family. Okay, fine. It's very nice, you know, to hear that um, Lynn has given money to the uh, project. Terrific. Um, it's nice that he's lo loaned his name to the project. Fine. Terrific. But he was there. So many of these people give money and that's the end of it. You never see them. But hmm. he was there sitting in the same row I was um, really responding. It was so wonderful to every now and then hear him really be so enthusiastic and a glance to my left every now and then would show that he was so engaged and so, so appreciative and really applauded those performers with such gusto at the end. So we certainly have praised him for doing what he has done to make the drama bookshop happen again. Hmm. But it's so nice that it wasn't just a case where he wrote a check. He wanted to be there. He was there. He gave his all because the cast was giving its all and he was very you could tell proud that he was connected in this way with repertorial espanol by the way the theater uh, is very small it's char in a strange way i know it's such a strange comparison to make it reminds me of fenway park <laughs> <laughs> it's got a big green wall in left field <laughs> you know it, 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 nothing like that but there's just something about the the angles and the, 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 the it's it's uh, it's a unique space uh, even though it is technically a conventional theater with a balcony and all that but there was there was something about it that uh, makes me think of fenway park that may not mean much to uh, people who haven't grown up in boston or haven't been to fenway park or have no knowledge what fenway park is but it's it's uh, i don't think there's any theater in the city that's quite like repertoria espanol and um and it's certainly in a place that's not in the theater district it's on east 27th street near lexington avenue and uh but I always enjoy going there. And um, this was another time when I had a, a very, very fine time watching this novel come to life by an extraordinarily talented cast. Um, and um, we have to also, of course, thank the director, who um, Marco Antonio Rodriguez, uh, for doing such a wonderful job with these people on stage. All right. So uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. I'm not going to try to butcher the uh, Spanish. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, very I bad know. at that. Me either, me either. Mm. But uh, Peter, tangentially, I want to thank the New York Yankees for losing to the Boston Red Sox because <laughs> it, it allows me to get some sleep at night and be able to see more theater because I can't watch the playoffs and do both. 
So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's very true that sports fans do feel that way when they when uh, their teams lose. Uh, I've heard that so many times from so many people, and um, I certainly remember when the Yankees were playing the Red Sox, and it was it Aaron Boone who hit that home run. Uh, Booney, I think it was two, yeah, yeah two thousand three. That um, you know the Red Sox were fully expected to win. Uh, they were doing well the whole game, and then what happened? The home run uh, came, and uh, all my friends at Boston said, "Up, uh, I got so much more sleep." Yep, I didn't want I the World Series didn't exist that year, you know, so that's on and so right. forth. It did mm-hmm. the next year, but that's another story entirely. <laughs> you got sleep in 2004, too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 1986, I got a lot of sleep. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Michael, you headed over to the Cabaret at Argyle, and uh, tell us about your uh, trip back out to Long Island to see this uh, production. Well, I was really anxious to get back to the Argyle. They, it's a wonderful newish theater uh, that uh, you know was really just kind of getting started and establishing itself when the pandemic hit. Uh, so I think, in that sense, maybe they were uh, even more vulnerable than some other theaters. But it certainly seems uh, like they're going great guns. This uh, excellent production of Cabaret continues through the 24th of this month. So anyone in the in the uh, metropolitan area, uh, I urge you, if you can get there, to do so. Uh, you, will, you will not be disappointed. And as we've said before, um, Babylon is so easy to get to. I, I feel like there's a train every 15 minutes <laughs> in both directions, uh, you know, because it's a major hub. Uh, th- this, uh, I would say, I've seen several shows at the Argyle at this point, but I, I think this was the most professional feeling one overall. And one interesting thing that happened was halfway through the first act, I turned to um, my my companion and said, uh, I think they're singing to tracks. Uh, and But no, because <laughs> uh, at intermission, we walked down to the orchestra pit and there was a, a, an orchestra. Um, so the orchestra was so good that they sounded like they were tracked. Uh, I didn't hear any clams or anything like that. And, and it was very spot on. Uh, the show has been running for a bit already, uh, but it does continue through the 24th. I, I urge you to see it. Great cast. John Peterson who has played the MC on Broadway in uh, in both the original and the revival of the Sam Mendes uh, Rob Marshall production is the MC. Uh, I think this is the first time that the Argyle has had uh, someone who's played a role on Broadway recreated there. So that would be reason enough to go. He's absolutely fantastic. Um, the woman, uh, here's, here's an interesting thing. The woman who played Sally Bowles, Dana Costello, I absolutely loved her. She's a gorgeous woman with an uh, amazing voice. I thought her accent work was spot on. I thought she really understood the character hundred percent. And, uh, and so it, um, it disappointed me that I was extremely distracted by her hairstyle, which seemed so contemporary to me, so modern, that it really took me out of the show. I wish um, that someone had advised her otherwise, but uh, the, again, the friend I went with didn't, see, didn't seem to bother him that much, so maybe it was just me for some reason. Uh, she, um, You're going to hear from her again. She was really, really, really great. And um, the, the, the whole cast across the board, but I have to mention 
Suzanne Grodner, who played Fräulein Schneider. Uh, I would say in the first act, she did a, a great job and uh, she absolutely fulfilled everything that the character needed. She also sings it better <laughs> than most people uh, that I've seen in that role. Uh, so that was a nice benefit. But um, and so after act one, I would have said she she was just great and and and, uh, you know, really did everything she needed to. But her scenes in act two, where she has to um, give up her romance with Herr Schultz, played by Fred Frabada beautifully, um, because of because he's a Jew and because she sees what's happening in Germany with the Nazis coming to power was so heartbreaking uh, that really uh, my my friend uh, Kevin McInerney and I we were both in tears um, mm. and for an actress you know to be able to do that especially uh, I think it can be difficult to to play that kind of a scene so well repeatedly you know eight, eight seven or eight times a week over over uh you know uh, uh, over a run uh to get to those those really emotional scenes like that and make it seem like uh it's create the illusion of the first time that this is this is something that's really happening to this woman for the first time and and she just doesn't know what to do and she's so heartbroken about it it really was absolutely extraordinary and i i would say to go see this production if only for that performance but there's so much else about it that's really, really wonderful. Directed by Evan Pappas, um, co-directed and choreographed by Sarah Bryans. Hmm. All right. So uh, Peter was beyond Babel and Michael was actually Babel. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Broadway babble on. <laughs> exactly. So, Peter, you saw 123 Manhunt at Theater for the New City. So, why don't you tell us about this to wrap up for the morning? Sure. Um, the thing about um, this play is that at the first act, I really was very annoyed by the main character. I really um, hated the fact that here was this wino uh, standing on the roof of a building. And he comes across um, as just terribly angry and he hasn't ostensibly he hasn't accomplished anything. And he's telling this young man that um, all, dispensing all this wisdom, uh, he has all the um, answers. He knows everything about life and uh, he accuses the kid of being stupid, naive and all this kind of stuff. And you're thinking while this is going on, well, you know. He's he's a wino. I mean, how smart can he be? You know, why should a kid take advice from him? Why should a kid be threatened by him? Why should a kid be so moved and ultimately uh, do his bidding? However, in the second act, we do find out a very good reason why he turned out the way he turned out. So I think that Tony DeMuro, who's the playwright, did an extraordinarily good uh, job in um, in making this happen and at least justifying to some degree why he's turned out as he has. Yes. I mean, many people emerge from tragedies in a much uh, more profound and um, impressive and um, constructive way. But one can understand why this man was boxed into a corner and um, had to uh, react the way he reacted. So you may have a very little, very, very little patience with him during the first act. 
But one reason why you may is the fact that Santo Fazio, maybe Fazio, I don't know, F-A-Z-I-O, is phenomenal, phenomenal at playing this Malcriant. Um, just, uh, it's the best performance by an actor I've seen this season. Um, I, uh, I keep track of how many shows I've seen. This was show 46. And um, I'm telling you, magnificent, uh, truly, truly magnificent. And um, certainly for that, um, for that uh, type of role, you couldn't have asked for anyone better. Uh, fans of Greece might be interested to find out that Eileen Kristen, who was the original Patty Simcox in Greece, is on stage here. Now, really, if you do the math, she's no kid. But I'm telling you, she is in great shape and seems very, very youthful. So uh, it, it almost seems impossible, impossible that it could be the same person. But it's in the bio and we'll, we'll trust. I do recall seeing her name in the original cast album. So um, so she plays a very important role in the second act. The play almost seems like two disconnected uh, pieces because you only see uh, the malcreant and the young boy in the first act and the second act starts the young boy is nowhere around and uh in come two other characters and um you wonder gee what's going on and you know you're supposed to wonder what's going on because um the young boy has been dispatched to do a certain type of shall we say errand um i'm putting it mildly uh, purposely to be vague but what happens is that um, we do find out that uh, he will uh, come on the scene later and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have our questions answered about that young man. But uh, two friends of his, uh, I'm sorry, two friends of the uh, Malcriant um, is uh, there, uh, are there and uh, certainly have a lot to say about his background and where he is and what he's doing and where he should be and all that goes with that. So strong writing. And um, it's not very many plays that you lose patience with in the first act that make you in the second act say, oh, 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 yes, 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 I get it. So um, but Tony DeMuro has done that. Now, William Rodenbush, what a tremendous job of directing. Just tremendous. Um, um, I guess maybe it's pronounced Rodenbush. I really don't know. Um, I have shaken hands with him, but um, but I don't know um, how it's pronounced. But what I do know is that he knows how to direct a show. And he has directed this one to make the suspense so taut. Terrific. So uh, Theater for the New City, First Avenue, Ninth Street. Um, not the uh, classiest of theaters, I'll grant you. Um, maybe not the place where you want to take a first date. But the play's the thing. <laughs> and the production's the thing. And certainly Santo Fazio is the thing as well. All right, and that's uh, playing through October 24th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwaybradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your final podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? The question was, a performer in the original cast of a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical had an unusual name. Her first name was the name of an actual city, and her second name was not only the name of one of the United States, but the actual state that this city is in. 
So who had this odd name and in what R&H musical could we have found this performer? Well, there was a performer named Temple, Texas, one of the ladies of the evening in Pipe Dream, Roger and Hammerstein's 1955 effort. And Temple, Texas genuinely exists 65 miles north of Austin, population 78,439 which coincidentally was the number of curtain calls Glenn Close took after her last stint in Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Paul Whitty was the first to get it, followed by Tony Janicki, J. Aubrey Jones, Mike Meany, Brigadoo, Jack Leshner, Pat Payne, and Josh Israel. This week's question is a complicated one, friends. You are going to change the first letter of the name of a musical and replace it with one that immediately follows in the alphabet. For example, if the musical were keen, K-E-A-N, it would become lean because L follows K in the alphabet. If it were mame, it would become name because N follows M in the alphabet. Okay, now <laughs> what you're looking for is the name of a musical. And here's a hint. It played encores. And then you'll change one letter in the first word of the title to the next letter alphabetically, and you will have a title that would be apt for a musical version of The Catcher in the Rye. Favita. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'll cut that out. I, I shouldn't give away the answer. Okay. That's right. Don't give it away, James. <laughs> All right. If you have an answer to that, e email Peter at, at trivia at broadwayradio.com. He'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, first of all, I should say I deserve to be hit with a wet umbrella or maybe have a uh, plate of schnitzel with noodles <laughs> thrown in my face because I missed uh, last week, Julie Andrews birthday, which was October 1st. Uh -huh. And we didn't want to let that go by. So of all the hundreds of uh, possibilities that we could have chosen for a musical moment, I thought I uh, would find something rare, which is Julie's recording of dear friend, from She Loves Me. Uh, she made a single uh, of two songs that I don't, I'm almost positive never appeared on any album. She, uh, the title song from She Loves Me and Dear Friend, uh, which was released. And uh, one of the greatest might have been of show business history mm -hmm. is that there was to have been there were plans for a, a film version of she loves me with julie and dick van dyke which mm -hmm. never happened for whatever reason i think they both would have been amazing in those roles and there is no uh there's that wonderful tv british tv version of she loves me but no film of it so uh that's a big a big lack in the catalog um uh, so too bad that didn't happen, but at least we have this recording, these two recordings from that score. All right. So I guess that wraps it up for today. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for li listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Charming, romantic, the perfect cafe then as if it isn't bad enough a violin starts to play candles and wine tables for two 
discreetly sympathetic when they see 